The Booknook on WYSO was presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Wright Memorial Public Library, Clark County Public Library, Tip City Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, and Washington Centerville Public Library. Good morning. Welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. The Mystery Writers of America each year give out awards called the Edgar Awards, named after the guy who supposedly wrote the first detective novel, Edgar Allan Poe. And these awards are given out in a number of categories, and they are incredibly prestigious. Writers dream of winning an Edgar and a little bust of Edgar Allan Poe. And probably the most sought-after Edgar is the one for best mystery novel. And this year, there were seven nominations, books that came out last year. And the nominees are The Mad Woman of Paris by Jennifer Cody Epstein, Bright Young Women by Jessica Knoll, An Honest Man by Michael Carita, The River We Remember by William Kent Kruger, and Crook Manifesto by Colson Whitehead, along with Two books that I think are probably going to be the winners. One of them is going to be the winner. And I, I just, I really think that it's either going to be S.A. Cosby for All the Sinners Bleed or James Lee Burke for Flags on the Bayou. S.A. Cosby is probably one of the hottest writers in the genre right now. And during my conversation with S.A. Cosby, I talked about James Lee Burke. Let's listen now to S.A. Cosby on the best of the book Nook Edgar's installment. For me as a writer, I want you always want to push yourself. And there is something to be said about the flexibility that you have when you're writing outlaws. Because, you know, basically outlaws don't have to follow any rules. They just don't have to get caught. That's the their main uh, the main thing. And so with a sheriff, with a police officer or someone, like you said, on the other side of the law, they are bound by certain rules, hopefully, by certain rules and, and uh, conditions. And so I wanted to write a character who um, who was trying to walk sort of that moral line between, you know, the, the chaos of, say, the crime or the underworld and then the, the, the everyday folks that he, he seeks to protect. And so I wanted to create a character that had to deal with sort of some of the moral quandaries that come with that. And you've created a, a fictional county called Charon County, Virginia, and he's the first black sheriff in the history of the county. And, and this is a, a very rural, a conservative mm -hmm. county. And mm -hmm. uh, you talked about how these guys are supposed to be on the right side of the law. Well, apparently some of his predecessors were not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that I liked about Titus when I was able to sort of nail down who his character is. Um, he is someone, he's a former FBI agent who took an early retirement and came home um, to help his father, Albert, who was having a hip surgery, and he ended up staying. And as he stayed, he sort of wanted to take this sort of stand with the police force in his hometown. Um, he had grown up under sort of those different sheriffs who didn't really... Uh, equally distribute the law, defend the law, and so he wanted to sort of uh, change that. And so he ran. He didn't think he was going to win, and to the surprise, I think I say in the book, to the surprise of almost everyone, he did win. And um, of course, 
um, because he had the support of not only uh, uh, some some of the townspeople, but some of the churches and some of the um, some of the organizations. He was able to create a sort of coalition. Of course, when you do that, once you become a sheriff, once you get in office, he finds a lot of stress. It makes for a difficult situation. Someone once told me. Um, good writing is putting a character in a tree and then throwing rocks at him. And I feel like at times I was uh, I was throwing bricks at Protitus. He has a lot going on. <laughs> well, he's certainly got an antagonist. Uh, this guy who's the head of the Board of Supervisors comes from uh, <laughs> big money, and uh, he's yeah. always on Titus's case. What a jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm glad that you got that response because that's the way I want people to see him. Uh, Scott Cummings, yeah. Uh, Cunningham, he's, he's, he's a jerk, but I like that Titus has the sort of everyday antagonist, which is sort of, like you said, the, the head of the town council, who's, who's really a jerk, who's really on his, on his, on his case, um, you know, uh, different adversarial folks within town. And then, of course, later on in the book, he, he, he uh, is, gets engaged with his real antagonist, um, mm. the villain of the book. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I like the idea of him having sort of this larger-than-life antagonist that he's trying to deal with, and then the minutiae of the everyday, you know, I think that hopefully that makes it relatable, you know, uh, to folks that you understand that the, the ins and outs of his day-to-day um, tra- um, travails, and then also this sort of mythic uh, confrontation that he goes through as well. I think you definitely did that. My guest is S.A. Cosby. We're talking about his new novel, All the Sinners Bleed. You mentioned he's a former FBI agent. This is kind of a step down for him, uh, and, and we're getting these frequent uh, reminders throughout the story that, that something bad must have happened for him to leave mm-hmm. the FBI, but but you really have to earn that. You have to get into the book of ways to figure out mm-hmm. what happened, and it's pretty terrible. Yeah. Yeah, He and I think it's funny about him is, again, with Titus, he's probably my—you know, my first book, Black Always Learned, that character Bob will always be— have a special place in my heart, the main character of that book. But there's something about Titus I really like is that he has a conscience, you know, and I think so many people feel like in society today that people don't have conscience. They don't have guilt. No one has shame. And he has all of it, maybe to his detriment. And so that that, that incident that you referenced is something that he carries with him. And so, you know, being sheriff, yes, he wants to help the people in his hometown, but he also feels like he owes a, a, a penance. Uh, and so it's sort of him trying to, uh, uh, you know, find redemption. Um, of course, as the book goes on, he finds that uh, this sort of redemptive arc is something that he has to build for himself. Being sheriff won't give it to him. He has to give it to himself. He has to earn it uh, within his own mind. And so I thought that was very interesting as well. Did you just describe Blacktop Wasteland as your first book? Well, it's my, I, yeah, I, it's my first book with Flatiron. My very first book was My Darkest Prayer. And I love those guys, too. Those, like, those characters are special to me as well. But I think Blacktop Wasteland, I, I sometimes think of my first book in a way because I feel like from Darkest Prayer to Blacktop Wasteland, I, I, hopefully I got better. There were certain things like in Darkest Prayer that I wish I could change. You know, there's, there's a lot of growing pains in that book. You can see it, I think. Uh-huh. And I, I think with Black Tide Wasteland, I sort of moved past some of that. I mean, it's, again, Black Tide Wasteland is not a perfect book, but it does feel like, for me, it was a step up from Darkest Prayer. But I say that, I mean, I love all those characters. I love all those books. You know, what is it like? You know, you, you love all your children equally. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, after I interviewed you for your last novel, 
razor blade tears, I said, man, I got to dig up these first two books. And so I read Blacktop Wasteland and it just blew me away. And I can see why you would call that your first book because that really puts you on the map. That, that, mm-hmm. that one that came out before that was on a smaller press. And I understand it's just mm-hmm. recently been reissued. And, and I tracked yeah. down that one as well. And, and I loved all those books. And in that first book, uh, we learn a little bit about mortuary science, and uh, mm-hmm. I heard a rumor that you know a little bit more about that than a normal person might. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For a long time, I worked at a mortuary as like a mortician assistant, so I was uh, helping out around here. Uh, I would go pick up uh, um, the remains of, of folks, and so I got a really good viewpoint on that on that world, that, that industry. And I think the thing that I took from that was it really – taught me a very deep sense of empathy, you know, mm. like, and I hope that I'm able to, I, I know I did, I'd use that in my writing because seeing the funeral uh, professionals, seeing mortuary professionals and the way they have to deal with so many different people at what is the worst time of their lives and, and how so many people different behave differently. Some people, you know, are, are, you know, they're very morose and they're, they're dealing with it in a sensitive manner. And some people are upset and angry and they act out. And so to see the way that the, the funeral home professionals were able to sort of navigate that with such humanity and such dignity, you know, it made me think about the characters I write about. And I try to bring empathy to all the characters. Like in all, all the sinners bleed, there are some far right extremists. They're not great people, but even toward the end of the book, I try to give sort of an empathetic understanding of where those folks are. I don't agree with them at all, at all. But you know, I also try to understand their mindset and try to get inside their heads. And I think my previous work experience, uh, including the funeral home, helps me uh, to do that. I've interviewed James McBride a few times, and uh, James likes to talk about how. He can have friends who have extreme right-wing views. He says, as long as they can keep telling a good, dirty joke now and then. <laughs> I think you can have – I have friends on different sides of the political spectrum. I think, to quote James Baldwin, we can disagree about politics. We can disagree about things as long as our disagreement isn't rooted in um, the idea that I don't have the right to exist, then we can talk about anything. And so I think as long as we're mutually respectful, we can have those conversations. Yeah, but I definitely try to be empathetic to all the characters, even the villains in my books. Again, I think there is a distinct difference between sympathetic and empathetic. Mm. Sympathetic is sort of you almost agree with the person's position. Empathy is I understand where you're coming from. I don't agree with it, but I see how you got there. And so I think, you know, with All Sinners Bleed, there's a scene, and I won't go too far into it because I don't want to give spoilers, but there's a scene where Titus has to confront a really terrible person, and he tries to be empathetic. He tries to connect with that person on a human level. And I think at the end of the day, I think that's what we all try to do. And you know, But that doesn't mean that he's not willing to stand up to you know uh, evil, stand up to intolerance, but he's a very interesting character in that he definitely does try to get inside the head of the people that he's trying to help or the people he's trying to catch. And I think that makes him really fascinating as a character. You're listening to a recording I made last year of S.A. Cosby talking about his book, All the Sinners Bleed. It's been nominated for an Edgar Award for Best Novel. And we'll continue with that conversation right after this. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, fact-based journalism in service of democracy. 
and revisiting this morning an interview I did with S.A. Cosby last June for his book, All the Sinners Bleed. And this book has just been nominated for an Edgar Award for Best Novel, and I think he has a good chance of winning. He's one of the hottest writers in the genre right now. Let's listen now to the conclusion of my interview with S.A. Cosby, and the book will be out in paperback on July 9th. You know, he's such a complex character and funny. He's a funny character. I usually write, anybody that knows me that follows me, you know, I write standalones. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of, like, sequels and stuff. But, man, Titus and Bug are both two characters that, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll revisit them because they're just so interesting in different ways. And mm. Especially Titus, I think, because he is sort of this, um, you know, he's sort of this knight errant. You know, he's trying to stand in the gap between the, the darkness and the light. And so he, he just, he's just very interesting. I think maybe there's maybe a couple more stories I may want to, in, 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 you know, sort of investigate with him. Lee Child always refers to uh, Jack Reacher as the knight errant. My guest is S.A. Cosby, and we're talking about All the Sinners Bleed. I understand you were kind of going in a different direction when you were trying to imagine this next book, that, that you had some very different ideas, and then you, yeah. you changed course. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. So when I first started writing this book, it was in the, it was after the, uh, the unfortunate summer with the, you know, the death of George Floyd and a lot of different police brutality, police corruption uh, issues, and I wanted to sort of write a book talking about that, but using a small town as sort of a microcosm uh, for the nation as a whole. And what I realized is I just, I just was too personally connected to it. I didn't, I wasn't able to give it the distance that you need and the deference that you need. And so, so I kind of was stuck. I was like, Oh, what do I do? And so then I sort of looked at it from a different perspective and I sort of looked at it from using like a traditional Southern Gothic sort of framework. And to me, the things that are the, the four pillars of Southern Gothic fiction are race, class, sex, and religion. And so talking about religion in small town, talking about how religion divides but also brings people together, um, using that sort of as a narrative point to discuss the things that are important to me, that made the book work. And it, it was a relief because I was, you know, 20,000 words in, and I was like, I've got to figure out where I'm going to go with this if I'm not going to go this way and then I take a, I can take this turn to the right and it ended up being very um cathartic for me you know I grew up in a small town I, I attended a uh, a small church that was founded by my great great I'm gonna get this wrong great mom oh my family would be so angry my great 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 grandfather and so um excuse me religiosity in small towns and sort of that framework and that tapestry that they create are fascinating to me. I think that's why a lot of people write about it. I mean, I'm not the first, I won't be the last, so I'll sort of write about that. But I wanted to write about it in a way that I think some people will read the book and think it's that I'm negative about religion, and I'm not, but I do think there is something to be said about the idea that, you know, you don't have to be a part of an organized religion to be spiritual. I think those things are not mutually exclusive. And so those are things that are very near and dear to my heart that I that was very lucky that I got a chance to talk about this in this book, while at the same time, hopefully crafting a compelling mystery and thriller and suspense and a little teeny bit of horror. There's some horror uh, methodology that I use in this book. Nothing supernatural, but sort of, I wanted to create that sense of unease throughout the whole book. Mm. That sort of sense of, you know, there's a darkness at the edge of town, to quote uh, a great Bruce Springsteen album. Well, you've 
You definitely have some horror elements, no question. The book is All the Sinners Bleed. S.A. Cosby wrote it. And this community, it's rural. It's lots of churches. Whenever Titus hears somebody's name, he can say, oh, well, they go to that church. (laughs) And you just talked about your church experiences there. I understand uh, you went to a revival or something with your mom one time, and and, and you had an experience that kind of shook you up and turned your head around. Yeah, so when I was a young man, uh, basically from the time I was born, my mother had some uh, serious physical disabilities. And my mom at one point was going to, like, uh, chant revivals and stuff to um, sort of in, in, in basically try to have someone lay hands on her and use a, sort of a faith healing technique. And she really, really, really wanted to believe in that. And I remember we went to one, and we were going out. We were standing out front in the line to get in, and there was these two gentlemen off to the side, smoking cigarettes and talking. And, I, you know, I, I was an observant child. My mother was very observant as well. And we kind of noticed those guys. And I'm like, okay. And then we went inside when the uh, when the minister called up people to be, air quotes, healed. The people that he pulled up were those two guys, and they were pretending to be disabled. One of them was on a cane, and the other one was wearing sunglasses like he was blind. And I remember my mother turning to me and said, you know, they're not going to heal anything here except their pockets. And that sort of was a watershed moment for the positive aspects of religion, which are community, which is spiritual enlightenment, peace, uh, med- sort of meditative contemplativeness, but also the negative aspects of religion that can be used to, you know, manipulate people, to rob people up, to take their money. And so I've always sort of had that in the back of my mind. It's something I wanted to address in my writing. And uh, again, like I said earlier, I don't want it to be. I hope people don't come away from this book thinking that oh boy, S.A. Cosby hates religion. That's not the case at all. Mm. Um, but I think. There is something to be said for the idea of not adhering to the tenet of, oh, well, you have to go to our church, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. I think you can have a spiritual moment that's not even supernatural. I think walking along the bank of a river can be spiritual. I think you know being in nature can be spiritual. Something that brings you peace can be spiritual, and I think you have to be aware of the fact that there are people who use that desire, that human desire, or existential compatibility against you. And so you have to be aware of that. But that doesn't mean that I don't look at that, that those things in like a positive light. You know, whatever whatever you have that gets you through the day and it's not hurting anybody else, I support it. And I think that's hopefully the message people will take from the book. I think most readers will come away with the message that S.A. Cosby doesn't like hypocrisy. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There's a, a, a movie from a few years ago. I think it's one of the NCU movies, Captain America. And there's a line where Steve Rogers says, you know, I don't like bullies. And I, I don't. I don't like bullies. And I definitely don't like them. Yeah. Can we uh, give them a snapshot of the opening just to kind of set this up? Because it's action right from the beginning. Oh, yeah. So basically, the beginning of. Uh, of as sinners bleed, there's a prologue talking about the town, Charing County, and then Titus is a sheriff. He's having a cup of coffee with his dad, which is funny. I love their relationship. Like my previous books, the father son's relationship are kind of fraught, and with this one, I wanted to change that up. So Albert, who's Titus's dad, he's very, he's you know, he's a, he's a good old boy. He's very down home. He loves his sons. Um, he has a brother named Marquis that he loves. It's sort of strange at the beginning. So they're talking about Marquis. They're having a cup of coffee. Um, Albert is fascinated with this coffee machine that Titus has. His, Titus' his girlfriend gave them that makes one cup at a time. And so he gets a call, unfortunately, that there's been a, a shooting at the local high school. And so he jumps in his, his Jeep and drives down, and he confronts a former student 
of a teacher and this former student has killed this teacher. And then the former student is talking to Titus. He seems to be having some sort of mental uh, emergency and Titus is trying his best to talk him down. And unfortunately, um, things take a turn for the worse. And in the aftermath of all that, Titus discovers that the teacher, the former student, and a third mystery person were a trio of serial killers that had been using Titus's town as their dumping ground. Not so much their hunting ground, but definitely their dumping ground. And so he dedicates himself to finding this third person. And through that, he uncovers so much, you know, darkness and, 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 and terror within this town. But, you know, Titus is a, is a, he's a tough guy, and he, he's willing to stand, like I said, in that gap between the darkness and the light. A friend of mine, we were talking about a TV show called True Detective, and he made a comment about the characters in that show. He said no matter what they've gone through, because Titus isn't perfect. He's got some his own faults and flaws, but when the darkness arose, he, he doesn't avert his eyes. And I think that's a, an admirable quality to, uh, to have. S.A. Cosby joins us. His new one is All the Sinners Bleed. Sean, uh, I know you're a, you're a stubborn, determined guy. I understand your first book got rejected uh, over 60 <laughs> times, and then you finally found the right agent. T- tell us how this happened. <clears throat> yeah, so my very first book got rejected a bunch, as you said, um, 63 times to be exact. And, you know, I think, you know, having an, a relationship with an agent is like having a friendship. You have to be on the same page. And the agent that I had at the time is a really great person. He's a really great guy. But, you know, we just weren't connecting. And so we parted ways amicably. And then um, about a year later, I went to a, a writing conference in uh, Florida, a big writing conference called BoucherCon. And I was uh, lucky enough to be on a panel talking about stunning crime fiction. And I, um, after that panel, this gentleman comes up to me and says, hey, I really like the way you think. I like what you're talking about up there. I like the way you describe Southern fiction. And, and he says, my name is Josh Gessler, and I'm a literary agent. I love to work with you. And I was like, yeah, right. And he said, no, sis, I am. And so uh, I went home, and I had the manuscript, which ended up being Blacktop Wasteland. I sent it to him. Um, you know, that was in the fall of 2018. Uh, he signed me on in December of 2018, and he sold it in February of 2019 to Macmillan Books, uh, uh, Flatiron Books, subsidiary of Macmillan for a, a two-book deal. And the funny thing about that is that I think people who, who see my books now maybe think I've just kind of come out of nowhere, and I've been writing for a long time. I've been writing so long. I remember when you had to send a self-addressed stamped envelope to get your manuscript back. Uh-huh. There was no email. So, uh, yeah. And so this has been a long time, in, a long process, but I think it's everything happens for a reason. I think everything's happening now. I'm in the right place uh, to, to have it happen, and I, I'm i just uh, so so grateful and so honored that people connect with my work the way they do and they allow me to just tell stories. That's all I've ever wanted to do. It's the, it's the only thing I've ever think I'm kind of good at, so I'm just very, very lucky to have that opportunity. Well, I am thrilled about your success. I vicariously enjoy it. Whenever you're on Twitter and you post a picture <laughs> of yourself with one of your favorite authors or you talk about some new award that you got, and I just go, man, go for it. Go for it. I'm, I'm just so happy so that, much, man. that you're doing so well. And, and uh, I think this new book is going to be great. I think it's it's just coming out, and, and I, I'm seeing uh, bestseller all over this thing. That, and, oh, man. You know, I mean, I think it's going to be. It's a great book. And, and um I'm just getting ready to do an interview with uh, Joe R. Lansdale. He's up next. Uh, he's got this collection called Things Get Ugly, The Best Crime Stories of Joe R. Lansdale. Yeah. And I see where you wrote the introduction, Sean. <laughs> that was such an honor for me. Gosh, Joe, Lan- Joe R. Lansdale is 
he's the, the if you talk about the, the the Mount Rushmore of writers, he's definitely on my personal one. And I was very, very, very honored to have the opportunity to write the introduction. And, um, you know, Joe is a, he's an iconoclast. He's one of a kind, you know, whenever you ask Joe what genre he writes in, he's like, I write in the Joe R. Lansdale genre. And I love that answer. And he's just a fan, one of our best living authors. I really mean that. Love him to death. What question should I ask him? <laughs> I would love to know, <laughs> he'll know what I'm talking about when he's going to write another werewolf cowboy story. Cause he, <laughs> I love, I love how he bends the genres together. And I, I would love to see another werewolf cowboy story. Excellent. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. That's, that's a really good question. And, and uh, speaking of rejections, I've had a guest on the show 22 times. I've gotten to know him pretty well, James Lee Burke. And, I think of him as a as a pretty devoutly religious Catholic, yet he mm-hmm. hates hypocrisy. He mm-hmm. hates racism. He hates all these same things that you hate. And he also went through incredible rejection. Back when there were a lot more publishers, he had a manuscript that was rejected over 100 times. Yeah. James B. Burke is probably one of—it's hard to say he's underrated— but I think he's one of our most underrated writers. He his he elevates crime fiction to the highest level of literature. You read a Dave Robichaux story, you're reading you know modern mythology. You're reading a a parable, and I just I, I'm just in awe of his ability, his uh, his talent with words, and you know um, just be mentioned in the same sentence with him is an honor for me. So huh. he made my day just even saying that. So. Well. He, he's in his mid-80s now, and I keep thinking he's going to slow down, and I just saw an announcement that he's got a new publisher, and he's got four books in the pipeline. <laughs> the dude's a machine. I aspire to that kind of productivity. I'm not nearly as productive, but <laughs> like, I'm not surprised either because he is, he's such an, an incredibly insightful, intelligent person, and he really looks at the world um, not as it is, but as it should be. And I think that's what sets him apart from other writers. And I, I think if you ask any writer worth their salt, they aspire to that sort of uh, understanding. Well, speaking of prolific, how does Joe R. Lansdale put out so much stuff? The guy must just write all day long. <laughs> I tell you, he again, he, him, there are writers that I look at and I admire that sort of ability because like that's like i struggle like I, and people think i'm sort of believer. i've written a book a year now for like the last five six years but you know i think joe probably has written a book since we've been talking <laughs> <laughs> that's a good line so what do you got in the can have you got one you've you've wrapped up another one no i'm working on a new one though um tentatively titled king of ashes uh working on a new book about a family who owns a crematory, and one of the members of the family runs afoul of local gangsters and is up to the uh, oldest brother to sort of try to help him. But as he tries to help him, he finds out that maybe he's really good at being a local gangster. And so there's a family dynamic there that I want to explore, but also this sort of uh, idea of falling, you know, being seduced by the dark side of uh, of life. And so um, in the midst of working on that now, um, hopefully, probably hopefully finish up by the end of the year, uh, but we'll see. But yeah, that's my new one that I'm working on. That was S.A. Cosby, recorded last June, talking about his book, All the Sinners Bleed. It'll be out in paperback on July 9th. And coming up in our final segment, a guy we were just talking about, James Lee Burke. He's another nominee for an Edgar for Flags on the Bayou. 
That was S.A. Cosby, recorded last June, talking about his novel, All the Sinners Bleed. It's been nominated for an Edgar Award for Best Novel, and it will be out in paperback on July 9th. And uh, he's one of the hottest writers in the genre right now. And another writer who has been nominated for his novel, Flags on the Bayou, is a guy who's been around for a while. He's been writing books for 60 years. James Lee Burke, you heard us talking about him during that conversation. And Sean Cosby said he was honored to be mentioned in the same sentence with James Lee Burke. Well, they're going to be mentioned a lot coming up on the Edgars. I think one or the other of them is going to win. And I hope it's James Lee Burke because he's 87 years old. He hasn't won an Edgar in a while. Sean Cosby is a lot younger. He'll win Edgars. I hope that James Lee Burke wins. He's, he's my sentimental choice. Let's listen now to Jim Burke talking about Flags on the Bayou. I'm really proud of this book. I probably have a bias about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Jim, I, I'm, I'm always impressed by how you can shamelessly rip off the Bible. Well, that's another one. I'm kind of scared. I've been... I've been borrowing from the Bible for 60 years now. <laughs> no, it's more than that. Well, it's got all these great stories, right, Jim? Yeah. Well, I always say I've got a good source. Yeah, you've got a great source. <laughs> but uh, in truth, all of my work uh, has its um, origins in history either uh, the stories of in, from the Bible or from uh, antiquity, the Greeks and the Romans, or the Elizabethan theater. But in reality also, the great stories are somehow passed on in the unconscious. You know, uh, Carl Jung had that um, conception. He felt that there is a uh, there's something about the human brain that it uh, in effect passes on historical experience. It's there. The the story is already written, and in order to access it, though, it requires a neurosis, and that's where you pay your dues. Mm-hmm. That's it. You pay a price for the story. When you go into the unconscious, it's a visit that can be uh, haunting. It can disturb, disturbing. Uh, writers often have ha- unhappy lives. You know, it's. In other words, it's not a free ride. I know this though, and every artist knows it, that the gift comes from somewhere else. It's, it comes from outside the person. Everyone knows that. If he claims otherwise, the gift will be taken from him and given to someone else. I have never seen the exception. Mm-hmm. James Lee Burke joins us. His new novel is Flags on the Bayou. Jim, uh, I like to go back into your vast uh, catalog of books. Uh, you've got written 40 novels, and, and I like to go back and pull out one that I haven't read in a long time and reread it. And recently I went back and I, I read, again, A Stained White Radiance from 1992. And in that one you wrote, 
no matter how educated a Southerner is or how liberal or intellectual he might consider himself to be, I don't believe you will meet many of my generation who do not still revere, although perhaps in a secret way, all the old Southern myths that we've supposedly put aside as members of the New South. You cannot grow up in a place where the tractor's plow can crack many balls and grape shot loose from the soil, even rake across a cannon wheel, and remain impervious to the past. Tell us about this, about the Civil War and how it, it never really goes away. Well, this is it. It's written in blood in the soil we walk on. We don't, we don't acknowledge that. And we're living in a very difficult time, and it's one that I think, uh, where in effect, has created a crossroads. And I hope we make the right choices, but I'm not sure. But at this point, we all are not willing to realize the complexity of the 19th century. And aside from the 20th century, it was the most bloody time in our history. In fact, in our history, I'm talking geographically now, it is the most violent time. The, we soaked the, the, the soil of our country from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. We followed the sun, and it was a sun that was blood red, when we got to the Pacific Ocean. Mm. That's not uh, a hyperbole. It's the truth. The crimes that were committed in the Civil War, or the war between the states, were uh, the crimes of William Sherman. There were others. But they were. that was the teaching role. And after 1865, they c- committed genocide. And we waged a genocidal war on Native people. That's not uh, an exaggeration. We deliberately, and Sherman was one of those who supported this doctrine, went about exterminating the bison. In the year 1830, 50 uh, million um, bison on the uh, continental United States. In the year 1892, there were 200, 200 were uh, survivors. And that's when, of course, Teddy Roosevelt actually saved, you know, our, much of our uh, wonderful countryside that we have today. But he also saved the bison. But anyway, we we starved the Indians into uh, captivity, and it was a it was a weaponizing of the same programs that uh, Sherman. Uh, <clears throat> well, anyway, I, I don't mean to change the uh, try to change people's thinking about things, but uh, there's no denying that. The damage after 1865 is still with us, and that the blame was placed by white Southerners on people of color, and it's the, still the same problem, the same players, they're all there, and we have politicians who 
have changed one party into what is almost, I think, neo-fascist. It's not almost. It's there. They've already. They made their. They made their. Uh, oh, they made a contract with the devil. I think, but that's just one guy talking. Mm. <laughs> Always good to talk to you, Jim. Yeah. My guest is James Lee Burke. Flags on the Bay is the new novel, and uh, you mentioned this. Uh, bloodbath out west uh, after 1865 and and this aspect is part of your story because uh, we keep reading about this weaponry that they developed during the civil war which turned that conflict into such a a horrible bloodbath and then with that weaponry with all those repeating rifles with all that high-tech gun gear they wiped out the bison they they, uh, put the native americans in 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 their place, in their view, uh, you know, it, this the weaponry was a big part of that. Well, it was the Gatling gun, of course, and repeating rifles, and uh, the it was over in eighteen uh, eighteen ninety one. I think it's ninety or ninety one. That was what's called the the battle at uh, Wounded Knee. It was no battle. It was again. It was. Uh, genocide. Mm. The Baker massacre here in Montana was the worst. It's the worst single atrocity in the history of American uh, conflict with Native people. It's it's horrible that, that what occurred. Every cloak was rolled in blood, right? Yeah, that's right. That's okay. the story of the Baker massacre. Yep, your, your previous book. My guest is James Lee yeah. Burke. We're talking about Flags on the Bayou. And uh, you have these different points of view, these different characters. I like to talk about some of these characters, including my favorite one, Jim. And and you know me well enough to guess which one is my favorite, I'll bet. Uh, am I going to say the colonel? Yes. Yeah, I you, knew it. You, you know me. The man is kept, here's an absolute lunatic, <laughs> a guy that was born on the other side of Mars. He's a red leg. Louisiana was full of red legs. In fact, uh, well, anyway, after the war, one of the uh, younger, uh, James and Younger gang was one of the instigators of that long <clears throat> old fight the continuance of the war in Missouri and Kansas. But, uh, yeah, he's a great character, and I, and I love the women characters. Um, Darla, the enslaved woman, uh, who's a very formidable woman and dangerous when the wrong people make a mistake. <laughs> and also, uh, of course, Hannah, who is the... Uh, searching for her little boy who's separated from her uh, at the Battle of Shiloh. My great-uncle, great-great-uncle William Burke was at Shiloh. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, they, all of my family were in, involved in the war, with, uh, the war between the states. Uh, but they were not slave owners. And, in fact, William Burke was... Uh, Oh, and his, I have his diaries, and uh, he was an abolitionist, and the three brothers, the three Burke brothers, were uh, the same. 
they uh, but it was a very complex kind of war that I think uh, one of my characters in the book talks about the fact that the majority of people did not know what the war was about they didn't they didn't have communications uh, the way we have today um, sometimes people would just wake up in the morning and would eat breakfast and glance out the uh, window and see some guys in blue burning down the barn, slaughtering their cattle, setting fire to the wheat field, and digging a latrine in the lawn. <laughs> the people inside the house don't have a clue about mm. what's going on. Something that happened in Washington, D.C. Right. <laughs> But think of it in this way. When I, and this is just, again, the perception of one fellow, myself. To denigrate uh, the soldiers who fought the war and to uh, vandalize and uh, to call them, uh, oh, my heavens, you know, uh, traitors and... Uh, it's unfair. Would we do that to the soldiers who who fought in Vietnam? And, and that happens sometimes. That I, I I remember a fellow I was talking to. Uh, oh, he said that uh, he came back from Vietnam on a ship, and he said when they went under the San Francisco Bridge, uh, all these GIs were up on the deck and feces were thrown from the bridge on them. Well, that's, I mean, we have history repeating ourselves. Do, 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 we, do we castigate those who fight the war rather than those who made it but did not go themselves? That's, it's, it's not right. And uh, it's a terrible mistake. And of course, it is a gift to the political party who has really found a, boy, they have just really gotten a huge boost. And you know that. Anybody does is, knows anything of Southern history. You just can't go around just, uh, uh, vandalizing people's historical memorials. It, it, uh, that, that's not a blanket statement. It just means showing a, a bit of discretion and looking at the reality of something. Mm. That, uh, <clears throat> look, or for example, I was watching uh, the Turner Network, and there's a black lady on there. She's an academic, and she oh, introduces the TV audience to the film and how it was made. And just, oh, it was a little, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, uh, she gave a talk on Gone with the Wind, and she said there are people who want to suppress this film. And she said, if we do that, it's, it's a victory for those who, who did terrible things to, to people, to black people, to who... The 
these things occurred and the record has to stay there in place and to erase it is a terrible mistake and I, I was so impressed with what she said and then she says we we cannot be afraid of the history that is our own we should look at it as many times as we can and it's a good heavens it's I wish we could have that lady on CNN mm-hmm. <laughs> again and again. That was James Lee Burke talking about his novel, Flags on the Bayou. It's been nominated for an Edgar Award for Best Novel, along with S.A. Cosby, who preceded him, with another uh, Edgar nomination for his novel, All the Sinners Bleed. And I have a fearless prediction that my guest tomorrow in the book, Nuck at 1030 Sunday morning, Jamal Mayfield, who has just published his first novel, Smoke Kings. I would like to predict that this book will win Best First Novel next year in the Edgars. This book is incredible, Smoke Kings. I'm going to read you a little excerpt from it. Mason's firm, Sorrow International, ran the gamut from surveillance to missing persons, from bug sweeps and cheating spouses to unsolved crimes and litigation support, and, of course, corporate investigations. Most of the investigators were former supervisory federal agents. Though Mason didn't have that background, he modestly felt as though he was among the firm's best. On average, he started, fraud schemes last about 18 months before being detected. Miller inhaled. Sounds as though you're telling me this thing happened and it's gone on for a while. Can you have her brought in? I'd like to ask her a few questions. Should I stay? Mason shook his head. I'll debrief you afterward. The her in question was a black woman named Tamara Blake, a seven-year employee in the payroll department. She dazedly took a seat at the conference table. As soon as she sat, Mason stood up, took off his jacket, and draped it over the back of his chair. He placed his butt on the corner of the table and fixed his gaze on Miss Blake. Didn't say anything, just stared at her. He had to give it to her. She held on for a heck of a lot longer than most. What's this about, she finally asked, voice cracking. Who are you? No one told you. Nothing, she said, just that someone needed to speak with me in the conference room. I work for a firm that investigates, among other things, corporate fraud. Fraud? It's sophisticated stuff, Mason offered. You wouldn't believe the tools we have at our disposal. Continuous monitoring, anomaly detection, pattern recognition. Just in data mining alone, there's decision trees, machine learning, cluster analysis. One of the young women from his firm, Ash, had shared the various means with him during their talks, and it sounded impressive, though... He couldn't have spoken on any of it beyond the basics, meaning the names of the tools only. What does any of that have to do with me? You have a little boy and a girl, correct, Ms. Blake? Jade and Jamarcus, neither of their fathers in the picture. Uh, excuse me? I don't envy you. What is this? The cost of ceramic crowns, braces, he shook his head. And that's times two in your case. Talk about a money pit. What did you say your name is? I didn't. I like it, please. Farmer. Mason Farmer, he grinned. You know, like James Bond. What is it you believe I've done, Mr. Farmer? Created ghost employees, he replied without hesitation. Tamara Blake didn't say anything. Amy Pizzolatto, Christine King, John Cruz, Flynn Coyle. Those names supposed to mean something to me? Yeah, they're supposed to, Mason said. All of them separated from the company during the time you've been working in payroll, but... 
magically they remain on the rolls for months after their actual termination dates. That'd buy Jamarcus a lot of Black Panther action figures. What's Jade into? Mason couldn't make out a reply. He asked her to repeat herself. Was it Peter Jacoby started this, she said? It's not appropriate for me to. Because I filed a complaint on him that never went anywhere. He promised to make me pay for it. Just the same. Mason frowned. Complaint? Apparently, I remind him of Misty Stone. Who? Exactly. I googled her. Don't make that same mistake. I'm afraid we veered off course here, Mason said. You were off course before I even walked in. Mason shook his head. I don't think so, Ms. Blake. I don't understand it. You white men got the world and it still isn't enough. That doesn't have anything to do with race. Or common sense, she said. This scheme you're claiming I cooked up would be bound to fail. The payroll system would eventually issue inflated W-2s and that wouldn't take nothing to detect. That's true. But I'm supposed to be that dumb, she said. Most criminals. I've had enough of this, she said, cutting Mason off. Oxmoor has a great health plan and I have care credit card with a zero balance. So I've never worried about ceramic crowns and braces for my kids, and I know I've never pocketed any money from some so-called ghost employees. So if I get fired over this, you can best believe I'll have my brother, he's an attorney, by the way, either represent me himself or hook me up with someone from his firm. I'll even add you to the lawsuit. Mason laughed at the notion. On what grounds? Racial profiling. I'll tell you, this is red-hot stuff from Jamal Mayfield, and I will be talking to him tomorrow. It's his debut book. I think it's going to win an Edgar next year for best novel. That's 1030 tomorrow morning. Jamal Mayfield, Smoke Kings. What an amazing novel. You've been listening to The Book Nook on WYSO. For The Book Nook, my name is Vic McCunis. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. <laughs>